Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. All right. Good morning. All right. So we're going to primarily be in Psalm 145 today. So um, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there and, and follow along and, and uh, audit what I'm saying. Um, but for those of you that don't know me, um, my name's Andrew, like Cody said. I've been one of the pastors since this last spring. Um, and uh, this is my first time teaching. So uh, we'll see how this goes. I don't really know how, how many notes I need to have to cover 35 minutes. So this might be really short. It might be very long. But I don't know if any of you are familiar with uh, the story in Acts 20 when Paul's speaking in the upper room and he goes on for so long that someone sitting in the window falls asleep and, and falls out the window. So we're gonna try to avoid that. Thankfully, you're all in, in nice, comfortable seats and not sitting in any windows. But um, yeah, so most of you may know um, my wife, Carrie. Um, we've been married, married for just over five years now. And three months ago, we were given uh, a beautiful little boy, Calvin. They're sitting over here. Calvin is the happiest boy on the planet. He is smiling and giggling all the time. So um, hopefully he doesn't lose his mind and discredit that statement. But normally, just trust me, he's the, he's the happiest baby that, I, that I've ever known. So um, after Carrie and I were, were married, we went to uh, our honeymoon to the Grand Canyon. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon, but if you haven't, I would, uh, I would definitely recommend going. Um, getting a good sense of, of just how small we are, um, it's, it's huge. Um, but for those of you that have gone, have been to the Grand Canyon, um, you know that one of the coolest things about it is you can sit and gaze over the side, take, a, take in as much as you want, and then you can walk 50 yards down the trail and look again, and it's completely different. It's a completely different view of of beauty and, and grandeur than you got before. And a lot of that's due to the, the way the sun uh, and the shadows interact with the rocks. It looks like a completely different, like if you were to paint it, you would paint a completely different picture just 50 yards away. And in Psalm 45, where we're gonna be, this is exactly what David is doing um, in this song of praise. He's highlighting different reasons that God is great. And then he goes on to explain the different reasons that he extols God, he praises God. So we're gonna start, um, I'm gonna read the passage here, Psalm 145, and then we'll dive in. So we'll start in verse one here. I exalt you, my God, the King, and bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. The Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will, pro they will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. All you have made will thank you, Lord, and the faithful will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might. 
informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. The Lord helps all who fall and he raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the, satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. So I chose this passage this morning because it's, it's what I'm burdened for. It's what I, I want to, to highlight uh, my life. I want it to be the foundation of, of everything that I do and say. And I want the church to, to see God for who he is and then let that overflow into, into the, the praising of his name. That's what, that's what I'm passionate about. So that's why I chose Psalm 145. But before I start, I wanna pray. Um, I need to ask the God of wisdom to, to guide my words. Um, and to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, because if, uh, if I'm counting on me, if we're counting on me to do that, we're, gonna, we're in for a rough morning. So let me pray. God, you are good. You are holy, righteous, uh, faithfully loving, slow to anger. Um, we know all of this to be true of you. God, I pray that you would um, soften our hearts, that you would guide my words. If, if there's anything that I've planned to say um, that you you don't want me to say, then take it away from me. And if um, there's anything that you, that you want me to say, then give me those words, God. I pray that we would um, spend time just uh, gazing and, and meditating on your word today and that it, would, uh, that it would change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we can break this chapter into about five subgroups. So in verses three through seven, we see his character and his works. In verses 8 through 10, he highlights his goodness. In 11 through 13, we see God's eternal kingdom. Uh, 14 through 16, we see God's providence. And then his righteousness and mercy is uh, verse 17 through 21. So that's my outline. And, and all of these reasons are, are different views of why David is saying that, that God deserves eternal praise from us. Look at how he describes God in this passage. He is unsearchably great and highly praised. He works wondrous, awe-inspiring, and mighty acts. He is good and righteous. The Lord is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, great in faithful love. He is good and compassionate to all he has made. He is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. He helps the fallen and raises the oppressed. He provides for every living thing and is near to all who call out to him in truth. He saves and guards those who love him and he destroys those who don't. This is an awesome God who is worthy of praise. But the irony in this is that David says in verse three that he, God is so great that his greatness is, is actually unsearchable. And yet he goes on the rest of the chapter to attempt to search the greatness. This, the very thing that he says is unsearchable. So David spends 
a lot of his life, he's, he's writ, he write, wrote tons of songs about the greatness of God, meditating and searching. And, and the reason for that is because David knows that the discovery is never ending. That's what it means when his greatness is unsearchable. It means that, that uh, no matter how many times we, how, how much time we spend searching his greatness, there's always more. There's always gonna be more. And he knows, David knows that that our praises are actually founded on this searching. So I came across this quote by uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon in his exposition on the Psalms, and uh, I thought it summed this up really well. He says this, hymns composed without thought are of no worth, and tunes upon which no pains have been spent are beneath the dignity of divine adoration. Yet when we meditate most and search most studiously, we shall still find ourselves surrounded with unknowable wonders, which will baffle all attempts to sing them worthily. The best adoration of the unsearchable is to own him to be so and close the eyes in reverence before the excessive light of his glory. All of the minds of all centuries will not suffice to search the unsearchable riches of God. He is past finding out and therefore his deserved praise is still above and beyond all that we can render him. So putting it simply, what, what David is trying to, to show us here is that there's a, there's a spring of grandeur and wonder that, that flows from the fount of God that never runs dry. It never runs dry. We are welcome to come and drink our fill, to take in all that we can of a God who surpasses our understanding. And there will be as much glory and wonder and discovery in that fount when we finish drinking as when we began. And so uh, when we search the un unsearchable greatness of God, we will constantly find reasons to praise the glory of God for as long as we live and forever. So in this Psalm, David is inviting us to come and look at the God who is, who is greater than our understanding can fathom, a God whose greatness is unsearchable. And uh, that's what we're gonna attempt to do this morning. So I, attempt, I say attempt because whatever... Um, Whatever we have to discover uh, at, at, whatever we have to gaze at this morning, even our best work of meditating is only gonna skim the surface of the greatness of God. It's gonna be like a drop in the ocean. So um, I can only hope that, that when we're done, it just, my goal is it leaves us desiring more. It, it, it leaves us in a place where we want to continue to search. And as we continue to search, more is always what we'll find. So as I outlined before, I wanna briefly take the, the five uh, subsections and, and expand on them a little bit. Um, and then uh, we'll try to highlight what I think David is saying in these verses. So first we'll take verse three through seven. The Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of the splendor of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the mighty, the power of your awe-inspiring acts, and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. So in these verses, we see David uh, is highlighting God's character and his actions. Uh, and I think David starts off with this because it, it sets the tone for the rest of the song. The Lord is great and highly praised. The, the ESV translates this, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Now, I prefer this translation because I think it highlights the point a little bit better, um, that, 
the, the subject of our praise should, should be like the object of our praise. So if God is great, as he states in verse three, then our praises should, should reflect that greatness. We should be speaking and declaring and singing of what is true of God. We should be, we should be passing on stories of goodness and righteousness from generation to generation. This is what David is saying. And side note, this is why the content of our songs is so important. If we are to properly proclaim his mighty acts and joyfully sing of his righteousness, then we need to be singing songs and having conversations that properly reflect what he has done and who he is. But back to the text, here's the key. What comes first? Is is proclaiming his greatness what makes him great? Of course not. David starts in verse three with an objective truth about how God is great. Then he shows examples of the greatness and then we see the response of praise. Look at the order. We see a statement of fact. The Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable, followed by the response of adoration. One generation will declare your works to the next and so on. We will see, we'll see this pattern repeated in each section of this, of this chapter, a statement of truth followed by a response of praise. The fact that God is great for many different reasons should incite uh, a spiritual vitalization. It should stir our affections for God. But listen, if we, if we get this out of order, if we put our, our emotions um, before the truth, now let me think how to word this. Where our emotions are absent of truth, our, our praises are not forever and ever like the psalmist says in verse two, but, but in fact, our praises are as fleeting as the emotions themselves because that's what they are founded on, right? So we have to make sure to get this in the right order. It must start with the reality of who God is and then attempt to reflect that glory and greatness to the world around us. Now, secondly, we see verses eight through 10, uh, David highlights the goodness of the Lord. This is what it says. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made and all you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. So another reason that David presents uh, to encourage our praises is um, that God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. Now, listen, there is nothing suspicious or, or untrustworthy in God. He's condescending and he's kind and he's empathetic. He's slow to anger and he's great in faithful love. This means that even to the guilty, even to the rebellious, they're given ample patience and, and, and time and kindness to repent. And what will they find when they repent? Well, they'll find grace, compassion, faithful love. His compassion rests on all he has made. God is greatly good to the greatly wicked, right? Praise God for that. His goodness, his goodness to all is irrefutable, really, because even the, the existence of the lips that curse him is proof that he's slow to anger and patient, right? The, the very breath used to, to deny him was was given to them by him, right? Does that make sense? So the long suffering creator God is waiting and he's inviting all that he has made to to return, to join into the infinite joy of praising his name. So moving on, third, we'll see the psalmist highlight the kingdom of God um, as a reason for praise. This starts in verse 11. 
They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your, mighty, your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. This is an amazing statement. So what we see in an everlasting kingdom is a kingdom that has no beginning, has no boundaries, it has no breaks, and there's no end, right? There is no power that can overthrow the one on the throne of this kingdom. And there's nothing that's outside of, of this kingdom's reign, of this, of this Lord's reign. So we see this strung throughout scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the bookend of the, of the Bible. In Genesis 21, we see him as um, El Olam, which means the king everlasting. And then all the way at the end in Revelation 22, we see him described as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So unlike our kings and kingdoms that we, that we have to distinguish by a number like um, King George II, I don't know if that's a real person or not, but, or, or the 46th president of the United States, there is no number. There's no number to God. David knew the Lord as king when he wrote this Psalm and the very last generation on earth is gonna know the exact same thing, right? Now that should be a reason enough to incite an overflow of praise from us, right? But let's keep moving. Verse 14, the Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So in this section, we see God's providence laid out as a reason for praise. Now there's a, a few different routes that I kind of wanted to take when unpacking this, but like I said before, this is a drop in the ocean of who God is. So um, the thing that, that really stood out to me in this section is that um, he's describing a God who is intimately involved in his creation. We're not, we're not deists who believe that, that God just created and then stepped back and, stepped back and watched it, how, how things unfolded, right? We have a God who, who recognizes when you fall. He lifts those who are bowed down and helps those who have fallen. He provides for his creation with an open hand. Now, this is, this is the gospel. We see it. We see it throughout scripture. It, it could be the, the content of, of countless sermons and probably has. But let's summarize it like this. God is capable and ready to meet your needs. Just come to him. He is, he is El Shaddai, the God who is more than enough. He is involved in, in people's lives so closely that he recognizes when you fall and he, and he helps you up. He sees where you are and his hands are open to welcome you back. You must simply come to him. He is sufficient. So that's how we'll summarize this. And then lastly, we see his righteousness and mercy as a reason for praise. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity, or some translations say all who call out to him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and he help, for help and saves them. 
The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys the wicked. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. So to unpack this section quickly, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull again from Spurgeon's uh, Treasury of David. Um, he says this, God's ways and works are both worthy to be praised. Jehovah cannot be unjust or impure. Let his doings be what they may. They are in every case righteous and holy. This is the confession of the godly who follow his ways and the gracious who study his works. Whatever God is or does must be right. In the salvation of his people, he is as righteous and holy as in any other of his ways and works. He has not manifested mercy at the expense of justice but rather he has magnified his righteousness and mercy by the death of his son. I love that. At the cross, we see God's justice and mercy perfectly on display. He is near to all who call on him in truth, but there are many whose formal prayers and false professions will never bring them into communion with the Lord. To pray in truth, we must have a true heart and the truth in our heart. And then we must be humble for pride is a falsehood. A God of truth cannot be near to the spirit of hypocrisy. This he knows and hates and will destroy. Neither can he be far from a sincere spirit since it is his work and he never forsakes the work of his own hands. So let me try to summarize this. Um, here we see God's character and actions are, are perfectly consistent. All that God is, all that God does is keeping with all that God is. There's never anything that God does that contradicts who he is. He never sacrifices mercy to be just and he never uh, sacrifices justice to be merciful. And we really need to look no further than the cross to see this, right? As I said before, we see his mercy, mercy and justice perfectly on display at the cross. So what is um, David's instruction for us as we reflect and meditate on why God is worthy of our praise? Um, let's go back and, and we'll just skim through and look for the verbs that he uses in this passage. The verbs he uses, declare, proclaim, speak, sing, thank, bless, inform, call out, cry out. What do all of these have in common? Our mouths, right? Our words. Now, this isn't to, I'm not trying to discredit or, or say that our actions have no merit. Of course they do. But um, we, we are invited to use our mouths to proclaim his greatness. And, and this is in song, in our singing, in, in testimony, you know, in our stories to one another, um, and just simply in our, in our conversations. We should constantly be using our mouths to proclaim his greatness to the people around us. Now, we know this is necessary in the praise of anything, right? Or how many of you, let's, let's say it this way, how many of you prefer to watch football with no one around, the sound muted, and not saying anything? Nobody, right? I mean, this is the whole point of the announcers is that um, you, you couple what's going, what you're seeing on the screen with words to describe it, Right? Or how many of you have, uh, have listened to a comedy or watched a, a funny show and realized you laugh way more when you're with other people than you do if you're watching it by yourself? Anybody ever watched Friends with the laugh track turned off? It's painful, 
It's not funny. Now, that's the whole point of the laugh track. We get a sense of sharing the laughter with people, right? That's what makes the show funny. That's why The Office is the superior show. But um, no, <laughs> but uh, we know that the, the vocalization of our passion is what completes our praises, right? C.S. Lewis puts it like this in his book, uh, Reflections on the Psalms. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he or she is. To come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Now we, we know this to be true, right? When it comes to our favorite sports or, or bands or, or teams, uh, we have no issue coming up with words of adoration, right? We, have, we can have hours of conversation revolving around the things that we most enjoy. So the challenge today is how easily does the greatness of God flow from our mouths? If we claim to hold Christ as the, as the centerpiece of our affections and claim that he sits on the throne of our lives, then why is it so difficult to proclaim it to the people around us? This may be a little provocative, but I'm gonna say it anyways, because I have the microphone. If, if you have no desire to sing or speak of the, of the stories that God has done in your life or the greatness of God in your life, then he's not what you desire most and he's not reigning on the throne of your life, right? When Christ invites us to worship him with our mouth, he is inviting us into the completion of joy that can be found nowhere else. We have to be using our mouths. So how do we do this? Do we, do we white knuckle ourselves into singing and, and talking more about how great God is? Sure, maybe sometimes, right? Sometimes we will need our hearts to catch up with our mouths or our bodies. Just like when we've talked about how raising your hands when you sing or, or bowing your knee when you pray, even when you don't feel like it, it is a good thing because sometimes we need our, our, the posture of our body to remind our heart of its proper posture. But primarily, we should be so saturated in scripture that the truth it's so saturated in scripture and truth that it overflows out of our mouth and our hands. So I think Jake Herring said this um, better than I could. So I just wrote it down word for word. When we read and pray and sing and meditate, God, the spirit who dwells within us will reverberate in joyful Christ exalted response, exalting response. If the word of God is so present in our lives, the Holy Spirit will take that and will change our affections and then our changed affections will change the way we speak and act. So how do we praise a, a great God? We delight in who he is. Remember the pattern that we saw earlier, statement of truth, 
responsive praise. We immerse ourselves constantly in, in, truth of, in the truth of who he is and what he does. And for the Christian, that will result in a spring of joy that, that, will, that will overflow out of us. It'll come out of our mouths, out of our actions, and it'll overflow to the people around us and the generations to follow. So in conclusion, I wanna leave you with this challenge. It's not, it's not uh, hard, no, wait, let me think how to say this. It's not easy, but it's simple, okay? Slow down, search the unsearchable riches of God, search the unsearchable greatness of God. Saturate yourself in scripture, meditate on it, memorize it. Meditate on his righteousness and goodness and mercy. Discover new truths and glories and mercies every day and watch how it affects the overflow of your life. Watch the joy that comes as a result of saturating yourself in scripture and in truth and who God is. John Piper would define it as Christian hedonism. And I, I stole it and wrote it down as a value of one of my lives, something that I want my life to rec- represent. But Christian hedonism is defined as um, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So his glory and our joy are tied together. They are not two separate ends. When God gets the glory, we get the joy. And when we search the unsearchable riches of God, we get to where the psalmist ends in verse 21. Our mouths will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. God, you are good and holy and righteous. We we thank you that you don't uh, substitute your justice for your mercy and you don't substitute your mercy for your justice. God, we know that um, all of your attributes crush us if it wasn't for mercy. So we thank you for that. We thank you for Christ um, coming and paying our price on the cross and that when we um, get to eternity with you, um, our only plea will be the blood of Christ. God, help us to be humble. Help us to be um, people who who saturate ourselves in scripture and, and sit under your, your teaching uh, and who you are and, and everything that you've done. God, thank you for this morning and thank you for these people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.